Thank you for tuning into sermons from Liberty Baptist Church in Newport Beach, California. Our goal is to help you know God more and take the next step in your spiritual journey, no matter where you're at. If you have questions about God or about Liberty, you can connect with us at libertybaptistchurch.org. We pray that the Lord will use this message to be a help and encouragement in your life. When I say the word worship, you don't have to answer out loud, but what what comes to your mind when I say the word worship? If that were a question on Family Feud, where they said, we asked a hundred people, what comes to your mind when I say the word worship? I would, I would imagine the top answer on the board in 21st century modern uh, Christianity, by a long shot, would probably be the word music. When we say the word worship, often in our minds, uh, it's related to music. And by the way, that's not a bad thing. This morning we're going to look, what is worship? How do we worship? What does the Bible have to say about worship? Again, in 21st century American Christianity, we have worship leaders that serve with worship teams in worship centers, leading worship music, and then we leave and go to worship concerts, and on our phones we have worship playlists. And I'm afraid, maybe for some, worship has been compartmentalized for many Christians as, as just that good feeling that we get when we hear a song that speaks to our heart. I just loved the music service that, our, that we had with our music team, and by the way, we are, it's not a performance, this isn't, but it's a, a music team that helps to lead all of us. We are all singing to the Lord, um, admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, exhorting one another. I, I loved what just happened here, but it, it, I, I'm, a fr- and I'm not against I saw some watched one that was on the music team, tears coming down their eyes as they thought about the truth of the message and sang the song, and I believe that that can be an act of worship. But I think there is a danger in in associating worship only with a good feeling that we get when we hear our favorite song, maybe in a packed stadium or in a church somewhere, And, and if we're not careful, we're always looking for the next worship experience. I want to answer the question this morning from Scripture and and talk about some things from our passage in Genesis. Is worship really just 20 minutes of our week on Sunday morning when we sing four or five songs together? Or 15 minutes each morning on the way to work when you listen to a few songs that that you enjoy that talk about God? Do you remember the woman at the well, John chapter number 4, as Jesus said, I I must needs go through Samaria, and and he goes, and and do you remember that woman at the well, um, Jesus asked her who her husband was. You remember that? And she said, oh, I'm not married. And he said, yeah, that's true, because you've been married and divorced five times, and the man you're living with now isn't your husband. That'd be a little awkward, a little like, whoa, I just met you. We're at the well. How do you know that? Do you remember that, that story? And Jesus tells her, he says, the, the, the man you're living with now isn't your husband, and you've been married and divorced five times. And what does the Bible say in John chapter number four? The Bible says, the woman, right after he said that, the woman saith unto him, sir, I perceive that thou art a prophet. If somebody walked up and told you everything about your life, you might think, okay, there's something. You're a prophet. You, you know some things. And here's what she said, our fathers worshiped in this mountain, and ye say that in Jerusalem, she's in Samaria, that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus saith unto her, woman, believe me, the hour cometh, 
When ye shall neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. Here's what he says. You worship, you know not what. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews, but the hour cometh, and now is, when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeketh such to worship Him. God is a spirit, and they that worship Him must worship Him in what, church? In spirit and in, and in truth. The woman saith unto him, I, I know that Messiah cometh, I, I believe, which is called Christ, that's another word for Messiah or Savior, I, I believe that God is going to send a Savior, a Messiah, and we will worship Him. And when He was come, He will tell us all things. She didn't quite get it yet. He had already told her all things about herself, right? He will tell us all things, and what does Jesus say? Jesus saith unto her, I that speak unto thee am He. I'm the one you're waiting for. And what do we see from this passage? We see that it is possible. It is possible, uh, and Jesus makes it clear that there have been at times people seeking to follow God that can be mistaken or deceived about the purpose, the object, the place, the methods of worship. He says here, you guys worship what you know not. You're, you're, you, you think you're worshiping God, and you, but you're worshiping in the wrong way, in the wrong place. And, and he said, there's a time where there will be true worshipers. And they that worship him, he's a spirit. They that worship him will worship him in spirit and in truth. I'm going to get where we're going, and it's going to tie in with our study in the book of Genesis here in a moment. Um, but I want, to, I want to let you know, in, in the King James Version of the Bible, the word uh, worship is, is listed, or worshipped, is found 178 times. 178 times you find the word worship or worshipped. Really, there are only two words that make up the vast majority, two root words, one in Hebrew, one in Greek, the Old Testament mainly written in Hebrew, New Testament mainly written in Greek originally. There are only really one Hebrew word and one Greek word that make up the vast majority of those things that are, are translated as worship in our English Bible today. 99 of those 178 times, it's the Hebrew word shacha. Kind of like I was just in Hawaii for a couple of weeks, and they do the shaka. I don't know if that has anything to do, if there's any connection there, but that's the Hebrew word. And what does that word that we translate as worship, what does that word mean? In other places, that same root word in our English is translated to bow down, to fall down, to reverence, to make obeisance. Do you remember Daniel? What did he say? We will not bow down, we will not worship that false god. Remember that? And he got thrown, Daniel and his friends got thrown into the lion's den. Uh, Daniel got thrown into the lion's den, I'm sorry, and then you have Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They would not worship, they would not bow down. Sixty times in the New Testament, so 99 times that Hebrew word, 60 times in the New Testament, including the ones we just saw in John 4, it's the Greek word proskuneo. It's the idea of to kiss one's hand or to fall down prostrate, falling to your knees with your forehead on the ground. That is the root Greek word. The idea, what would happen often if somebody comes to a king, or you might, they might kiss the, kiss the ring, kiss, we have some of those cultural things. The idea of, I am pledging allegiance to you. I am, I am submitting myself. I am lowering myself. The idea to fall, proskuneo, to, pr to fall um, prostrate, to fall uh, on our knees with our forehead on the ground, to lay flat. Worship in the Bible is a posture of humility, an outward sign 
of an inward heart attitude of great reverence and respect. Merriam-Webster's dictionary defines it this way in the English language. Worship is to honor or show reverence for a divine being or supernatural power. To regard with great or extravagant respect, honor, or devotion. This isn't an anti-music message, by the way. I, I do believe that, I definitely believe music can be offered to God as an act of worship. What I don't like is where we almost solely associate worship with a, with music or with a feeling or with a song or with an experience, that's when I worship him because that is a very incomplete understanding of biblical worship. It's interesting as you study music in the Bible, often music is associated with praise. To offer him praise, very rarely will you find music and the word worship anywhere in the same passage. Very rarely. Often it's about praise, music is praise. And by the way, some of that semantics, and that can be some overlap, we, we sometimes talk about it's praise and worship music, and I get that those two things can go together. But I want to talk to us today, I want to see some things from, from Scripture. What is true worship? Because here's the reality, true Bible worship is not simply a feeling, it's an action. It's an attitude. It's a posture of the heart, and I would suggest to you at times a posture of the body. We feel like, I think, maybe, maybe not you, but, but in, in traveling and speaking in a good number of churches and being around different things and, and online and, and different generations, I, I think often we have fallen into the trap of when I hear a song that makes me feel good, it's, it's, that is my worship time, and you can worship through song. But that is a very incomplete understanding of true worship. So, this morning's message, our message is true worship. Brings us to our passage. If you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Genesis chapter number 26. We're going to pick up where we left off last week. I mentioned to you last week, if you were here last week, we're walking verse by verse through this foundational book, the first book of the Bible. And I mentioned to you last week, we're going to be in this chapter for three Sunday morning messages. We, uh, last week, I preached a message, one generation uh, past, uh, I don't remember what the title was, uh, God's Promises for Another Generation, and it was about the fact that in this chapter, and I said to you last week, this chapter, Genesis 26, is the only chapter in the Bible that is solely um, dedicated to Isaac. We find Isaac in, in preceding chapters and in following chapters, pieces of his story, but he only gets one chapter to himself in all of Genesis. Isaac is all about, I'm, I'm sorry, this chapter is all about the life of Isaac. And so we saw last week where Isaac received the promise from God that his dad had received. And we talked about the fact we as the older generation, we need to be praying and investing and, and, and raising up another generation. And the younger generation, we need you to be embracing and receiving and, and coming behind us. And, and we need another generation. We need, that's God's plan is for a, a biblical church, is a multi-generational church. And we saw that last week, passing God's promises to another generation. This morning, we'll be in true worship. And then uh, two Sundays from today, I'll bring a message I've titled, When Your Kids Break your heart. And we're going to look at the life of Isaac and Rebecca. And I believe it'll be an encouragement to us as we see um, they knew something about their children breaking their heart. And, uh, and we're going we're gonna to look at that on the la- in two weeks on the last message in this chapter. 
Last week, I don't have, I'm not going to go through a bunch of review, but you'll recall there was a famine in the land, so Isaac moves his family to Gerar. He goes to Gerar, and while he's there, same thing his dad Abraham had done when, there was, when, the, when the, the economy went down, when the stock market tanked, he had moved to another place to try to, to make some more money to, do, to provide for his family. And God tells him, don't go to Egypt. That's what Abraham had done. He says, stay here and I'll bless you. And so he stayed in Gerar there, and God blessed him amazingly. The Bible says a hundredfold, and his business was booming in Gerar there, and, and amazing things were happening. And where we finished off last week, he was building, he, the, the Philistines, the enemies of God, had poured water, I'm sorry, poured dirt into the wells that Abraham had dug. I mentioned last week, a well was basically like, it was your life source. And so I, I liken it to our electricity and our water and our Wi-Fi. Can you imagine living if somebody cut off your water, your electricity and your Wi-Fi? That'd be a, that'd be a rough time if you had to do that for any length of time. And so you could not live in a place if there was not a flowing well, a well that would give you consistent water. It's, it's a life source. And so the Philistines had filled these up with dirt, and Isaac and his servants had begun to redig some new wells. And what we saw last week was, as they dug one, then the Philistines came and fought over it and said, that's our land. So Isaac said, look, I'm not going to fight, you can have it. And he went to another spot, and he dug another well, and they fought again, and he went to another spot. And that's where we pick up the story. He has, he has uh, built, they, they've built the third well. They have now moved a little bit away because of the conflict with the Philistines. And we see, pick it up in verse 22, Genesis 26, verse 22. And he removed from thence and digged another well, and for that they strove not. They didn't fight for that one. And he called the name of it Rehoboth, and, and he said, uh, for now the Lord hath made room for us, and we shall be fruitful in the land. Would you read verse 23 aloud with me? Ready? Begin. And he went up from thence to Beersheba. I have a map here, just to give you an idea in Israel. Um, the, the last two dots on the bottom left there, you can see Gerar right outside of the blue. This says Kingdom of Saul, which is another time in Bible history, but it was the easiest to put up on the screen. Gerar is where they were. They kind of moved a little bit, built another well, moved a little bit, built another well, and they ended up in that bottom dot that says Beersheba. That in Israel, you got the Mediterranean Sea, the Dead Sea. That's where they are. They're, they were in Gerar in last week's message. They've moved now. They're in Beersheba, and they have a life-giving source. They have a well. God says, all right, we've got a place we can serve God. We've got a place we can raise our family. God's going to let us be fruitful in the land. This is where they're at. And now we come to our text, verse number 24. Verse number 24. And the Lord appeared unto him the same night and said, I am the God of Abraham thy father. Fear not, for I am with thee and will bless thee, and multiply thy seed for my servant Abraham's sake. And he builded an altar there. Do you see that? He builded an altar there and called upon the name of the Lord and pitched his tent there. And there Isaac's servants digged a well. What is an altar? In Old Testament, as you see where they would build an altar, it's a place of worship. It's a place of sacrifice. It's a place of surrender. It's a place of prayer. Wherever you see an altar, you're going to find people offering worship to God. 
You're going to find people offering a sacrifice of praise to God. And so what do we see here? We see Isaac, when he gets to his new place, prioritizing worship in his life and in his family and for his people. He's prioritizing that worship that belongs to God. Altar was often either like a stack or a structure of stones. It would be at times a platform that was built with stones. You would find where they would come and bring offerings on the altar. They would would sacrifice animals for their sin offerings on the altars. And so here often as they move to new places, when their hearts were right with God, you would find them building altars. It is a picture that worship in our lives, our relationship with God, our humility before God, our surrender to God, our worship to God is a priority. Isn't it interesting? Right when they get there, the Bible tells us what they did was they built an altar. And I want to talk this morning, we're going to look at two different things, um, starting in verse 24, and then we're going to look at about uh, 10 verses today. We've already looked at three or four of them. Um, 10 verses or so this morning in the passage. The first one or two, it's going to show us what leads to true worship in our lives. Because worship is not just a feeling. It's it's an attitude of the heart. It's a posture of the heart and of the body. It's a reverence. It's a respect. It's a humility. What leads to true worship? And then we're going to look at the second half of the message, what does true worship in our lives lead to? It's not just an experience. It's not just something that we've done. What leads to true worship in our lives? Number one, I want you to see the first, the three things that I see in this passage that lead to true worship, building an altar in our lives and calling upon the name of the Lord. What I see, what leads to that in our lives, number one, is the person of God. Look at verse number 24. And the Lord appeared unto him the same night and said, I am the God of Abraham thy father. The person of God, who he is, should lead us to worship. Who he is should lead us to an awe, to a reverence, to a respect, to a majesty. Who he is, he is, we sang it this morning, he is creator, sustainer, ruler of all the earth. We bless you, Lord God of the ages. He is almighty. He's the king of kings, the Lord of lords, the alpha and omega, the beginning and the end. He is counselor. He's the mighty God. He's the everlasting father. You know, in our society, we worship celebrities and we worship business owners and we worship politicians, and we worship athletes, and we worship high achievers, but what about the one that created them all? Does he get any of our worship, any of our praise, any of our humility, any of our submission, any of our surrender, any of our sacrifice? What about the one who made all of them, who holds the oceans in his hands? Who knows how many hairs are on your head this morning? For some of us, it's getting easier for him to count those. I don't really appreciate how much you laughed at that joke. Who sees the sparrows when, it, when they fall? The magnificence of the person of God, who he is, should lead us to a heart of worship, to a humility in our own lives, to a surrender of our desires and our dreams, and to say, God, you have full control in my life. By the way, that is far more worship than a feeling. God, you have all of me. That's an act of worship. We surrender everything to him. Not only the person of God, but what you see secondly in this verse, the presence of God. Before he built an altar, what what did God say? He said, I am the God of Abraham, my father. Then what did he say? For I am with thee. You ever stop to think about the fact that he flung all the stars into space, all the universes, all this world, and yet 
he cares for you? The writer of Hebrews said he promised he will never leave us nor forsake us. He told his disciples in the Great Commission, the end of Matthew, what did he say? He said, lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. His presence in our lives. And I know there are times, by the way, you're not the first, there were times where some of the heroes of the faith in the Old Testament and, and people uh, did not, the psalmist at times would say, God, are you really there? I can't find you. I can't hear you. And maybe you're in one of those places where your feelings don't tell you that he's near you, but God's word tells you if you know him as Savior, he will never leave you nor forsake you. Let the fact of the truth of Scripture comfort your heart when your feelings aren't lining up with those things. The presence of God in our lives should lead us to worship. I had one pastor as a young couple. He was speaking at a couple's retreat when my wife and I were first married. And he said, I want to challenge you to practice the presence of Christ. I'd never heard that phrase before, and I thought, I don't know what that means. Maybe some of you have heard it before. Practice the presence of Christ. And I, first I was thinking, does he mean like presence like gifts? And no, he's meaning presence like he, he, he's present with you. And he said, I want you to practice the presence of Christ. What he meant by that is, you need to constantly remind yourself and behave as if that God were right there with you because he is. He said, if I go to heaven, I'm going to give you a comfort of the Holy Spirit's going to come and indwell the believer. And we have one part of the Trinity with us at all times. God, I don't understand it all. My finite mind can't understand some of these infinite uh, realities, but God is omnipresent. He's omniscient. He's omnipotent, all-powerful, all-knowing, and all-present. And he was saying, practice the presence of Christ. Have you ever, do you act a little differently when there is the presence of a squad car near you on the highway? Does your behavior change at all? Mine doesn't, because I always am driving exactly what I'm supposed to. First, you laugh at my hair, now you laugh at my driving. You're not a very kind crowd this morning. Hey, our, our, our behavior changes when the reality of who's around us, when the presence of an officer is near, am I right? Do kids, you ever see kids that are fighting or maybe at school or at home, they're acting, they're doing something differently. I've done this before. And an authority, a dad or a teacher or a principal or a coach or somebody walks in and just stands there. And all of a sudden, one kid notices they're standing there. Everyone else is like laughing. And I did this one time. My brother-in-law, who's now a school principal up in Northern California at our home church, his senior year, I was 22 years old. I was the high school basketball coach, my first year coaching. And uh, him and his buddy, Jared, they were goofballs. They were class clowns. And uh, they had, Vito, you remember those really baggy warm-ups? They had these baggy warm-up pants. And, these, and, they, and they were kind of making fun of our uniforms. And I walked into the locker room. I, and this is my first year coaching. Like, I was, I'm still pretty intense, but I was super intense. Like I was, I was Bob Knight, Coach K, Dean Smith, all of them put together. We were gonna, we were gonna win every game ever, and we're gonna be the best team that ever walked the face of the earth. I was super intense. We had gone through our warm-ups, and I was walking to come into the locker room. And I walk in and and it was a visiting locker room. Literally, Jared had climbed up. He was the assistant pastor's son. He had climbed, climbed up on top of the lockers, and he thought that the warm-up pants kind of reminded him of bell bottoms. So he decided he was going to do some disco moves, and he was doing, and, and like these were bell bottoms, and some guys out there were like, and they were all cracking up and laughing, and he's standing on the locker in a visiting locker room doing disco moves, doing a little Saturday Night Fever, and I walk in, and I stood there, and everyone's cracking up, and then one guy sees me, and he stops laughing, and then everybody else kind of stops laughing, and Jared's still dancing, like, my, my dance was really funny a minute ago, why is my dance not funny anymore? 
And he turns around and he sees me and he sits down and those guys didn't start that game. I don't remember what happened um, the next day in practice. It was not good. I do know there was one time where, where they got killed by like 21 points to a team we should have beat. The next day in practice, I made them do 21 of every punishment I could think of. 21 sprints, 21 suicides, 21 push-ups, 21 kangaroo jumps, 21, all these 21s. And I said, can anybody else think of 21? Anything else 21 we should do? And one of them said, 21 drinks of water, sir. And uh, I said, that's pretty creative. All right, you can get a drink of water. But our behavior changes based on who we know is with us. The presence of God should change the way we live. The presence of God should change our heart posture. It should change the way that we live. Number three in this verse, what what leads to true worship? The, The person of God, the presence of God. Number three, the promises of God. Do you see it in verse 24? He said, I I am with thee, the presence of God, and will bless thee and multiply thy seed for my servant Abraham's sake. And it was after, it was after Isaac realized the person of God and the access he had to the presence of God and the promises of God that he had received that he built an altar. That he said, I'm not worthy of all of this, but God, I love you. And we're going to build an altar, and we're going to make you a priority, and you're going to have first place. You're going to have preeminence. God, we're going to bow, and we're going to pray, and we're going to, and we're going to see some of the things that that worship led to in his life. But this is what led to that worship, the promises of God. God's personal promise to Abraham led him to worship. And may I say this morning that his promises to us in the inerrant, infallible, inspired word of God should lead us to worship. It should lead us to fall down in gratitude and thanksgiving and worship. And if our worship experience never leads us to a posture of humility, if it never leads us to, to a time in scripture, if it never leads us to thinking on the promises of God, if it never leads us to realizing the presence of God and the person of God and magnifying Him, I'm not sure it's Him that we're worshiping. These three realities that led to worship in Isaac's life should lead to worship in your life and in mine. Who He is. The the fact that He's promised He'll always be with us. His promises in our lives. Have you lost, church family, your awe of God? Have you lost your wonder? Have you lost your reverence? Have you just kind of gone through the motions? And look at me, and maybe I've had some measure of success in my life, and look at the life that I've built, and look at the success that I've had, and if we're not careful, we've begun to worship ourselves. We've begun to worship what we've accomplished. We've begun to worship our experiences. We've begun to worship our families. We've begun to worship the American dream. If we're not careful, we've lost the awe and the reverence and the wonder of God. Have you lost Your reverence, didn't the psalmist David say, restore unto me the joy of thy salvation? Why? Because he had lost the joy of his salvation. Can't you lose it? Can't you lose that reverence, that wonder, that awe? Recently, we mentioned it, our family had the privilege to spend a couple of weeks in Hawaii. I preached a week at a teen camp, and then we stayed together for a time of vacation together. And if you've ever been to, and we were on the island of Kauai, if you've ever been on, on that island, uh, you would agree it's one of the most beautiful places on earth. I've not traveled the whole world of the places I've personally been. It's probably the most beautiful place I've ever been. 
We, we literally drive around the island. We were there for over two weeks. And even on the last day, every time we would leave our hotel and drive the tunnel road out of Poipu and get on the two-lane highway and drive up to the North Shore in Hanalei and the overlook there, and it would multiple times in the car, I would be like, kids, look at that. We're like, just like driving around with our, our jaws dropped. It's a, there's a reason that they chose that island to film much of the Jurassic Park movies on there. It is one of the most beautiful places on earth. Uh, we, these are some just snapshots of things I took on my phone. The first one, we took a boat ride over to the Nepali coast. You can only get there by boat or hiking, and we weren't going to do a 13-hour hike, so we took a boat. And this Nepali coast is where, thanks for going so fast, Stage, so I can't explain that picture. This Nepali coast, let's go back to that one. This Nepali coast is where they filmed some of the helicopter scenes and things. And, and then we looked, and God's promise, the rainbow, right? We didn't know it. They, we had someone on the boat take a picture, and we looked at the camera, and that rainbow was there. Now you can roll through if you want. And, and some of just the beauty, this was the sunset as we're riding back there. And I think we've got one from a helicopter ride. Uh, this, is, this is at uh, Hanalei Bay, and our, uh, we were out with some friends there, and just the mountains and the oceans and waterfalls from uh, the helicopter, and everywhere you drive is just this astounding, that's that Nepali coast as well, this astounding nature. And this is not professional photography, this is me pulling my phone out, this is from a helicopter taking pictures, waterfalls everywhere, and rainbows everywhere, and just amazing beauty. This was out our condo we were staying in on the first morning, this rainbow right there as I was reading my Bible. You know, the interesting thing is we, we just took in this amazing beauty for a couple of weeks. My daughter, on the last week we were there, she had coffee with the pastor's daughter, friends of ours. And they were having coffee, and she asked her, she said, do you just drive around all the time just amazed that you get to live here? And just looking at all of the beauty, and I think that they do appreciate the beautiful place they live, but you know what she said? She said, to be honest, we probably take it for granted. We kind of just get used to it. And you know, visitors coming are just in awe. Like I almost got in 10 car accidents because I'm just staring at these beautiful landscapes. People that have grown up there, they've been there for a while. She's been there on that island for 17 years. Oh, they still appreciate the beauty, but you just kind of get used to it. Isn't that kind of how it works in the Christian life sometimes? When you first get saved, he loves me? The one who created the whole world knows who I am? He sent his son to die for me? He gave me his word and promises in my time of need and in my time of grief, and his word is true, and I can build my life upon it. He's my cornerstone. I've been searching. I've searched in alcohol, and I've searched in drugs, and I've searched in relationships, but Christ is that thing I've been looking for. I can't believe that he loves me. God, you have all of my life. Whatever you want, I surrender. I bow before you. Isn't that how it is often when we first get saved? But what about when we've been a Christian for a year or two? or five or 10 or 20, and we're surrounded by the majesty of God in our lives, and we just kind of take it for granted. Those three things, should have you lost your worship, your awe, your reverence, your humility, that, that leads you to bow down? So that's what leads to true worship, and then I want to give you what does true worship in our lives lead to. So that's what leads to true worship, but what does true worship lead to in our lives? 
Number one, it should, and this is where I'm talking about more than just emotional experience at some worship concert, more than just a feeling. And again, I'm not against God made us as emotional creatures. I'm not against tears flowing. I think it's beautiful if God touches your heart during a message or during a time of prayer or during singing. I'm not against emotions. It's not what I'm talking about. But it's not just true worship isn't only for a few minutes in your car or somewhere else. True worship is a, is a posture of the heart. It's a mindset. It's an attitude. It's a reverence and a recognition of who God is. What should true worship lead to? We see when he built an altar, number one, it should lead to surrender. Surrender. An altar pictures that an altar is a place of surrender. It's a place of sacrifice. They were always places of surrender and sacrifice. True worship, where we bow before him in humility and surrender, causes us to realize what is the act of bowing before someone? What is that act doing? When we come before him either like this or like this, or maybe all the way prostrate, when we come like this, what is that act? What is that picturing? It is showing I am in a place of vulnerability. I am in a place of surrender. I don't deserve to, to be on the same level as you. I am showing you my inside, my heart. I bow before you. And by the way, you study the Hebrew and Greek words of worship all through Scripture. They all relate to bowing down, to falling down, to laying flat. What are we saying, God? I surrender. What do people do if they're surrendering in a fight or in a war? They have postures where their heads are down, their hands are up, they're kind of crouched over. Why? Because that's not a real aggressive posture. If somebody comes at you like this, you're not worried about what they're going to do. But if somebody comes at you and you're reared up and they're ready to go, that's an aggressive posture. No, a posture of surrender. God, you have everything. I'm bowing before you. I'm offering you my life, not just my voice for a few songs a week. I'm offering you everything. I've built an altar here in God. Because of how great you are, I'm acknowledging that I am nothing and you are everything. God, you have all of me. Isaiah said it this way when he truly got a glimpse of who God was. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. Above it stood the seraphims. Each one had six wings. With twain he covered his face, twain he covered his feet, twain he did fly. And one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. He said, I got a picture the prophet said of God, and I saw him in his temple high and lifted up, and, the, and the, the seraphim, they were crying, holy, 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 the whole earth is full of his glory. Notice what happened. And the posts of the door moved at the voice of him that cried, and the house was filled with smoke. What did a true view of who God was lead to in Isaiah's life? Then said I, what? Woe is me. Who am I? Woe is me. For I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then went, flew one of the seraphims unto me, having a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with the tongs. Did I just lose it? We just have two weeks in a row. We might want to check the cords on this. Test one, two. Test one, two. All right, I'll go to this. Having a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with the tongs from off the altar. And he laid it upon my mouth and said, Lo, this hath touched thy lips, and thy iniquity is taken away, and thy sin purged. Look what it did. When, when we bow before him, that's when we can receive his cleansing, his salvation, when we acknowledge who he is and not who we are. And then look what happened. Also I heard the voice of the Lord saying, 
Whom shall I send and who will go for us? What does he say? Then said I, what? Here am I, send me. When Isaiah got a true glimpse of who God was, what did it lead to in his life? Humility and surrender. Here am I, send me. True worship. I believe that the presence of God The person of God, the promises of God lead us to true worship, but true worship always leads to surrender. God, you're so great, and I'm so small. You must increase, I must decrease. Do you see here from Isaiah how a true understanding and reverence of God led to surrender and praise to God? Can I ask you this morning, when was the last time you bowed before God in reverent worship? We have an invitation at the end of each service, an opportunity for people to come forward and have someone pray with them or ask Bible questions or just come pray on their own. And you know there's nothing special or magical about the carpet on these steps. And you don't have to come forward. And I try not to make it a guilt trip that if you really love Jesus, you're going to come forward. But do you know I think there is something about the posture of stepping out of your seat as God speaks to you from time to time and kneeling before him? And if you're not comfortable doing that here, it might be at your seat or it might be at home. I got thinking about this while I was preparing for this message. When was the last time your family knelt together and said, woe is me, you're great, we're nothing. When was the last time your family knelt together and prayed together? I got convicted. Our family prays together often. We, in school years especially, we read um, scripture together before school every morning. We pray every morning. We prayed this morning before we came to church as a family. But when the kids were younger, I was thinking about it this week, Tiff, we used to kneel all of the time. And I'll be honest, I can't remember the last time we knelt together as a family. Now, I think individually, different, each of us have knelt at different times in church services and even at home. But together as a family, I can't remember. It's had to have been months, maybe a year or two, since we all knelt together as a family. Again, I'm not saying there's anything magical, but in the word, it literally is that idea. And I do think there is something about I'm lowering myself because you're high and lifted up. And there, you may not physically be able to kneel, and that's all right. That, you don't, that God, that's not about that. But if you are physically able, when was the last time we knelt together, acknowledging our weakness and our, our dependence? May I encourage us to surrender everything, to come to a place of surrender in our lives where we build an altar, if you will, before God. I've got to move quickly. Number two, what does true worship lead to in our lives? Number two, it leads to not only surrender, but sincere prayer. Do you see it in verse number 25? And he built an altar there and called upon the name of the Lord. Sincere worship will lead us to prayer, sincere prayer. What was the model prayer from Christ when they said, Lord, teach us to pray? What did he say? Our Father, which art in heaven, what? Hallowed be thy name. The very first lines of the model prayer are are an act of worship. God, you're in heaven. You're above us. You're higher than us. Hallowed, holy be your name. You're holy, holy, holy. It's a reminder. We're not. We need you. The very first line of the model prayer is intended to cause us to realize who he is and who we aren't and to bow before him and to say, God, you're everything and I'm nothing. Sincere prayer 
we are small, you are great. Yes, we can worship God in song, but true worship is also going to lead us to call on him in prayer. How is your worship through prayer? Number three, what did true worship lead to in Isaac's life? It led to surrender, to sincere prayer. I see number three, it led to service. What does it say at the end of verse 25? And he pitched his tent there, and there Isaac's servants digged a well. What did they do? They did something tangible in service to God and his people. They built an altar, and they digged a well. They built a place for worship. They digged a place to serve. So they built a place to serve God, and then they did something to serve others. What's a well? It's going to provide the needs of the people around them. You know what true worship will do in our lives? It will lead us to do something to serve God and do something to serve others. Build an altar and dig a well. Service, acts of service are acts, if they're done from the right heart and for the right reasons, they're acts of worship. What did, what did Jesus say? People are going to come to heaven and, and, and he's going to say, when I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. And when I was hungry, you gave me something to eat. And when I didn't have any clothes, you gave me something to wear. And they're going to say, we never saw you hungry. And we never saw you thirsty. And we never saw you without clothes. What are you talking about? We never did that for you. And what did Jesus say? He said, as much as you've done it to the least of these, you've done it unto me. What is he saying? When you, from the right heart, for the right reasons, because you've received the goodness of God we sang about today, when you've received the grace of God, you've received God's blessings in your life, when you say, God, I've received that and I don't deserve it, now I want to use it to help somebody else, when it's done for the right reasons and from the right heart, God says, that's an act of worship to me. True worship will always lead us to service. It will always lead us to doing service to God and then for others, for God. When you do those things, I mentioned this a few months ago, you are not, I'm not in full-time ministry and you are in secular work. If God has led you not to get a paycheck from a ministry, you are still in full-time Christian ministry. Your job is a place, the Bible says that we as Christians ought to be working not for the bosses, but as unto the Lord. You through your work can bring in, be bringing God honor and glory and worship by being the right kind of uh, person at work and doing it for the right reasons and helping people and loving your family and using your blessings to bless others. Those are acts of worship. They dig a well. I don't know about you, but I don't think of well digging. I don't know that when I said at the beginning, when I say the word worship, what do you think of? Did, and let me just check. I could be wrong. Did anybody in here first thing came to your mind was well digging? It's not what I thought of. Digging a hole. When I say worship, what do you think of? Digging a hole, Pastor Ryan. I believe true worship in their lives led them to service to God and others. And true worship in your life will lead us to service to God and others. Do you know what worship has looked like at Liberty this summer? Oh, yes, we sing every Sunday together. But do you know what worship at Liberty has looked like this summer? It's looked like 100 plus people giving of their week for Vacation Bible School. It's looked like people here weeks before decorating and decorating classrooms and preparing Bible lessons and organizing lists. It's looked like people getting on buses and driving out to areas to pick up kids that couldn't otherwise come to church and, and they come and see the love of Christ. It's looked like people doing crafts and, and it's looked like people giving out snacks and feeding them goldfish and cereal and celery sticks and, and it's looked like somebody up here making a complete fool of themselves and Dr. Strange Guy doing science experiments. That is what worship at Liberty has looked like this summer. 
What is true worship? True worship always leads us to service. Some that people see and some that don't. You know what worship this summer at Liberty has looked like? It's looked like Mary Ann kneeling in the dirt for hours when no one's on the property each week to plant new flowers and pull weeds to beautify the house of God. I don't know about you. Have you noticed the improved flower beds as you walk by and beautiful things that have been planted? We didn't pay for that to happen. Somebody in an act of worship literally knelt in the dirt and said, let me do this so that when people come, they can know we really think God's house is something that deserves our best and it really matters and we're going to take care of it. Let worship this, this summer has looked like Javen and Emmett and Steve Boyer bring, uh, being at the new ministry property where we're going to have that open house today, doing things like replacing toilets and painting walls and installing dishwashers and replacing electrical uh, outlets. That's worship. While they were sweating in the attics, putting in insulation, God receives that. If it's done from the right heart for the right reasons, he receives that as an act of worship for him. What, what are they saying? They're saying, God... All of us have other things we could be doing with our time, right? And they're saying, God, your work is more important than what I had planned or what I might like to do or taking that rest. And I'm not saying nobody should rest. I'm not saying, but, but they've made a choice. I'm going to give my, that's an act of worship. God, I'm going to use the gifts you've given me, the resources you've given me. It's looked like a man in our church who works in the HVAC industry who would kill me if I mentioned his name. Donating his time and saving the ministry more than $50,000 just this month as we installed AC in the seven different units. That must be someone that's moving into one of those. Said, Praise the Lord, right there. It's going to make a difference. Why? They believe that the Christian servants who will be living there are doing an eternal work, so they want to do what they can to make sure that they're taken care of. That's a biblical principle, by the way. And may I just stop and say, according to what Paul wrote, Every servant that lives there and every life touched by those servants, I believe there will be fruit that abounds to the account of those that have worked there, those that have prayed for that property, those that have given to that property. That's what Paul said. I'm not asking you to give and to serve for me, but so that fruit could abound to your account. You know what worship this summer has looked like? A commitment card board out in the, in the, in the uh, lobby and folks going out and saying, you know what, I've worked hard and God's blessed me and I have some money and I'm going to use some of that. I'm going to give some of that back to God. It's all his anyways to, to be a blessing. We've got this new property that we, we can use and I can have a part there and I'll sign signing that commitment card. And this isn't a money-hungry pa pastor trying to manipulate into giving your money. This is a biblical truth that signing that commitment card or giving an offering is an act of worship. The Lord loves a cheerful giver. It, worship is not just singing four songs this morning. Worship is praying. Worship is opening God's word. Worship is bowing. Worship is serving. Worship is giving. Worship is, is, is our offerings. Worship can be all of those things. It's surrender. True worship in our lives is wrapped up in these. Let me wrap it up. Let me wrap it up. Number four. True worship, what does it lead to? True worship in our lives leads to verse 26. Then Abimelech, this is the unsaved man that remember when, when Isaac had followed his dad's example and lied about his wife being his sister? Remember that? I told you about that last week. And then Abimelech, this is the same guy. Abimelech had looked out and seen Isaac and his wife playing tennis, or maybe it was pickleball. The Bible, the, group, the Hebrew doesn't really explain. It just says they were sporting with each other, so I'm not sure. If it was tennis or pickleball or kickball, I don't know which one it was. But, but he looks out, and by the way, he was a bad testimony there, but I want, this is the same Abimelech. I want you to see what it says. Abimelech comes and from Gerar. He came from Gerar over to Beersheba, 
one of his friends and the chief captain of his army. And Isaac said to them, wherefore come you to me, seeing you hate me and have sent me away from you? He says, why are you guys here? I left you alone. I didn't want to fight with you guys. Why are you here? I'm trying to be quiet, do my own thing, mind my own business. I'm not trying to mess with any of you or your country in Gerar. I'm not messing with you. Verse 28, would you see what it says? And they said, look at this. We saw certainly that the Lord was with thee. And we said, let there be now an oath betwixt us, even betwixt us and thee. And let us make a covenant with thee that thou wilt do us no hurt as we have not touched thee and as we have done unto thee nothing but good and have sent thee away in peace. And thou art now the blessed of the Lord. What did they say? Basically, they said, we know that God's on your side, and we don't want any trouble, and so we're just coming to kind of like get it in writing that we're not going to fight with you, and we're not going to bug you, and and just make sure that, like, like you don't fight us, and you don't, like, pray against us, all right, because we understand God's on your side, but what do I see here? What did true worship lead to, and what does it lead to in our lives? I would suggest it leads to a bold witness. What did Abimelech say? We saw certainly that the Lord was with thee. Does your worship experience lead to any change in your life that people see? Oh, you sing about him on Sunday morning. Do you tell anybody about him on Monday? You pray to him at home on, on Monday morning. Do you post about him on Tuesday on social media? True worship, where we understand how great he is, how little we are, it's going to lead us to tell everybody we can, he is the reason that I am. He is, he is the one that's high and lifted up. He's, he's the, and I am a man of unclean lips, and true worship will change something about us. Does your private worship lead to a public difference in your life? Can I say that statement one more time? Does your private worship lead to a public difference in your life? Do those around you see there is something different about you? And as Abimelech said, certainly that the Lord is with you. You say you love God, and I say I love God and sing praises to him on Sunday. Do I ever tell anybody around me that I love him? Do I, do, am I ashamed of him? Do I talk about him? Do people see Jesus in us? They saw certainly the Lord was with Isaac. And then lastly... What does true worship lead to? Verse 30. And he made them a feast, and they did eat and drink. And they rose up betimes in the morning and swear one to another. And Isaac sent them away, and they departed from him in peace. They make the oath, the promise, and Isaac sends them away. Verse 32. And it came to pass the same day Isaac's servants came and told him concerning the well which they had digged and said unto him, We have found water. Again, God's blessing upon them. And he called it Sheba. Therefore, the name of the city is Beersheba unto this day. It's a place of fruitfulness. It's a place of the oath. That's what that word means. As, as they had made an oath there with the Abimelech, but then the oath that God had made to Isaac. And I would say, number five, I hope I'm not stretching this point too much, but I believe true worship in our lives will lead to separation. Separation from the wrong influences and the wrong people in our lives. What did he do? They made an oath and he sent them on their way. He said, there's something different about us and about our family and about our lives. True worship leads to a separation from those who are not drawing us closer to God. We say that he's worthy of everything we could ever give him on Sunday, and then we spend the rest of our week trying to find every selfish pleasure we could give ourselves Monday through Saturday. Does that make much sense? By the way, if that's how we're living, who are we really worshiping? We like to ease our consciences by an hour or two on Sunday morning, but if we're living for ourselves the rest of the week, you're not worshiping him, and neither am I. I'm worshiping myself. 
True worship will lead us to separate from some things in our lives. True worship, what am I trying to say as we wrap this up? True worship will lead to some tangible things in our lives, not just a feeling, not just an experience, not just a place. You don't have to come to the worship center to be led by the worship leader with the worship band and the worship team singing you worship songs to get your worship fixed. You don't have to do those things. It's not about a certain building. It's not about a certain song. It's not about a certain experience. Worship is a posture of the heart. It's going to lead in our lives to surrender. It's going to lead to sincere prayer. It's going to lead us to a bold witness. It's going to lead us to service, building an altar and digging a well, and it's going to lead us to separation. If you're, and I'm going to say it very clearly, and I'll, I'll be done, three minutes. If your Sunday worship doesn't change your life the rest of the week, who are you really worshiping? If your Sunday worship doesn't lead to prayer on Monday and generosity on Tuesday and sharing Christ with someone on Wednesday and serving in some way on Thursday and true joy on Friday and loving your wife and kids on Saturday, what good is it, Christian? What good is it that we came and sat here for an hour and a half together and we had a good time if it didn't change us, if the reality of who we sang about God is so good. All my life you have been faithful, the goodness of God. It, we bless you now, Lord of the ages, highest of all, we magnify you. If we sing that on Sunday morning, but it changes nothing about Monday through Saturday, what are we wasting our time doing? True worship leads to change in our lives. It leads us to, to get away from some things and to offer him some things and to do some things that aren't natural for us. The devil isn't worried about a Christian who sings some songs on Sunday, but I would suggest he's scared to death of one who lives for Christ Monday through Saturday. As long as you keep your worship contained in these four walls once a week, he's more than happy to let you go through your religious motions. But when that worship starts to infiltrate and change our daily living, that is when the church of God is powerful in culture. That is when God moves in a family. That is when God moves in a, in a city. That is when God moves in a church. That is when God moves in a state and in a country. When, when, when our worship isn't contained in an hour and a half inside of these walls in our church, but it changes our lives and changes who we are as husbands and as wives and as young adults and as high school students and as teenagers and as children and as, as, as parents and it changes who we are as business leaders and as employers and employees. When it changes us, people look and they say, there's something different about you. I've got to know what it is. That's true worship. If, you're worship, if you worship on Sunday and then mistreat your family on Monday, and we all make mistakes, I get this, but I'm talking about a repetitive, habitual lifestyle. But if you worship on Sunday and then mistreat your family on Monday and act unethically and dishonestly at work on Tuesday and indulge in drunkenness hanging out at the bar on Wednesday and privately view pornography on Thursday and flirt with your coworker on Friday and gossip on Saturday, who are you really worshiping? It isn't God. And I'm not trying to be too harsh. I'm glad you're here this morning. What I'm trying to say is, if that's you, and at times, by the way, that's me. At times, I worship him on Sunday, and I live for myself the rest of the week. If that's us, let's make some changes. Like Isaac, let's allow the person of God, the presence of God, the promises of God to lead us to true worship that looks like surrender. And it looks like sincere prayer. And it looks like service. And it looks like a bold witness.
in our lives. And it looks like separation. And yes, it can involve singing. But the Bible doesn't tie worship and singing together a whole lot. Ties praise and music together a whole lot. And by the way, nothing's wrong with music. It feels like this is an anti-music message. It's not. It's an anti-misunderstanding worship message. Worship should change our lives all week, not just our feelings on Sunday morning. Thank you for listening to Messages from Liberty. Tune in next week for more Bible teaching or subscribe on iTunes to stay up to date with our current series.